is killing the friends of Milosevic. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 42 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast, where we talk about writing spies and writing about spies. I'm your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan. Today, more readings from Welcome to Belgrade, Book 1 of the trilogy Self-Inflicted Wounds, which... I wrote, if that wasn't obvious enough. (laughs) What I'm reading today comes about three quarters of the way through the book and to a place where Alexei hopes to find a lead on the people who coerced a man into killing a provincial governor in Novi Sad. You see, for a brief time, Alexei thought my really was behind the friends of Milosevic murders, so he's in Belgrade without her knowledge and he's been following her. When they finally find each other, they agree the mission would go more smoothly and efficiently if they do what they always have done, which is work together. And when they get the opportunity to question the alleged killer from Novi Sad, all he will tell them is two words. White Knights. White Knights is essentially a strip club run by another low-level mafia boss, and it's a popular hangout for Russians who happen to be in Belgrade. And since it's a gentleman's club, Alexei is the one who gets to scope it out. Of course. Welcome to Belgrade, Chapter 25, Old Veterans and New. Beo Nachu. That's all Gutovich would say before Renovicic had him taken to an isolation cell. I know that place, Renovicic said, a Russian nightclub. We get no trouble from them. After contacting the Vienna Directorate Station from the house, and getting a briefing on Beonocho, Mai mused, Could that mean the Russians are behind this after all? Alexei shook his head. If so, it's not official, but someone rogue. Dmitri Kargan is too smart to get the government involved in Balkan murders. But Kargan sees himself as the new Stalin and is still a KGB agent at heart. Not that I'm his defender or anything, but he'd never back something like this. Officially, no. Unofficially, Tsar Dmitri would see himself as a strong man bringing peace to a troubled part of the world. Kargan recognizes what the potential embarrassment continued support of Milosevic would be. Well, not that you're his defender or anything. If Russians are behind the murders, they are renegades, mercenaries, Alexei continued. A possibility... Mai conceded. So, we get me inside White Knights. Why you? Because you're not giving lap dances to anyone except me, and it's a men's-only club, Maia. 
Voshenka. You only call me darling when you're trying to put something over on me, she said, and ignored him the rest of the evening. That gave Alexei the opportunity to see if Oleg Dimitrov could get him inside the private club. That is run by one of my boss's rivals, but if I tell him an old friend of mine will cause White Knight some trouble, my boss will buy your way in anonymously. Have him buy in Alexei Booker in a private bank in Ukraine. Of course. Spasibo, Oleg. Always a pleasure doing business with you. Fuck white nights up bad enough, I will get a bonus. Another conversation with the Vienna station and Alexei's cover was in place. When he climbed into bed, Mai gave him her back, but Alexei pressed against her unyielding spine, his mouth nuzzling, his hands wandering, until she rolled him over and did what he had wanted all along. Beonocu, Belie Noci, or White Nights, depending on whether you spoke Serbian or Russian or English, was near the Sava waterfront. Not quite in Old Belgrade's district, but on its fringes. It had some distinction, but not much. The money invested in it had gone into an exterior that implied class. The interior was a smelly, smoky den with mismatched tables and insufficient lighting. The members didn't care about the trappings so long as the vodka was cheap and the women easy. The club wore a veneer of civility over a rotting core, a metaphor for Belgrade itself. There were a few off-duty Russian soldiers, probably peacekeepers from Kosovo and Bosnia, and Russia's new entrepreneurs were well represented too. One such entrepreneur was the manager of the club, and the bouncer had to be on some mafia boss's payroll. Oleg Dimitrov's club Drago was for the young Belgraders with its loud music and drug-fueled raves, yet White Knight's manager was probably a step up in the Russian gangster pecking order. Dimitrov should have told me about this, Mai had complained as Alexei prepped for his initial visit. Two different bosses own the places, so I imagine they skirt each other rather than start a war here, Alexei replied. After his first visit, Alexei had briefed Mai. Everyone employed there is a woman, except for the manager and the bouncer. The waitresses serve drinks and dance. Mai had given him disinterest. It's the usual story, Mai. They thought they were coming to Belgrade for a better life, only to discover they're in virtual slavery, stripping for the house and whoring for the manager. He continued giving her reports after each visit, meeting her indifference with details he knew would piss her off, wanting a reaction, some indication of emotion from her. When he got nothing, he left the house for his next trip to White Nights, slamming the door so she'd have no trouble sensing his emotions. After paying the exorbitant membership fee that first night, Alexei could come and go as often as he wanted, which he'd come to look forward to rather than endure Mai's iciness. He understood her old insecurities remained, despite his having been a faithful husband for longer than he'd been an unfaithful one. 
The one thing he'd left out of his reports to her was he'd focused on building trust with one particular waitress, Irina. Well, he had told Mai that. He hadn't told her Irina reminded him of his first wife, the still-mourned Sofia Grigorevna. That resemblance brought back memories of a simpler time, a happier time, a memory he rarely allowed himself to indulge. Though Irina's work outfit consisted of a thong and five-inch heels, she managed to exude dignity. Her gait was sure and unhesitant. Nearly six feet tall in those heels, she commanded attention. Her wheat-blonde hair was pulled back in a sophisticated French twist, a few golden tendrils escaping and framing her face. Eyes as blue as the flowers of Russian sage, she had a permanent, insincere smile on her face. Probably a work requirement, but no one looked at her face. She smiled to assure tips, not because she was happy. Alexei estimated her breasts would have filled his hands, and her nipples were permanently erect from the rings piercing them. He imagined teasing them with his tongue. Imagined. Nothing more. He took a table in Irina's area with a view of another table of three Russian men, two in their late twenties, early thirties, one older, clearly in charge of them. They'd been here every night he had, not always the same three and not always three. He figured seven or eight men in total, and their severe military haircuts had caught his eye. No way could they be off duty from peacekeeping, not with their pricey suits expensive watches and flashy jewelry. Not Mafia, though, who had a distinct wardrobe and showed ostentation. Their demeanors bespoke easy money, but they had a discipline about them. They were no more noisy than other patrons, and they watched everyone around them. Alexei suspected they were Gudovich's handlers from his descriptions, and now was the time to prove it. Pretending to ignore the men, he sipped Heineken and watched Irina on her travels from table to table. She'd picked up on his attention early and watched as he drank. Without his cue, she approached the table with a fresh Heineken. Alexei paid her and tipped generously. The manager didn't allow tabs. He held up a 50-mark note. Irina, stay and talk for a while, he said. She raised a thinly plucked eyebrow. Talk. Fifty marks buys you a sentence here. How much to talk? We don't talk, Gospodin. You can buy a lap dance or a private session upstairs. One hundred fifty for the lap dance. Private sessions start at three hundred. A lap dance, he said, and counted out two hundred marks. Your boss doesn't need to know about the extra fifty. I will break here. I mean, some of you might be interested in a description of a lap dance, but Alexei basically uses it to interrogate Irina about the table of Russians that he spotted. Okay, no spy movies or TV shows to report on, but I'm watching a really interesting alternate history series on Apple TV. I don't usually go for alternate history because I'm an historian. And 
they may be entertaining. I've read one or two, and yes, they are entertaining, and they use that what if that all writers use. But I don't know. They just kind of rub me the wrong way. I don't, I don't know why. So I very rarely watch or read anything that's alternate history. The Man in the High Castle, which is a very famous series based on a book by Philip K. Dick, I believe. I watched a couple episodes of that and anything where the Nazis win, I don't, I mean, I can't handle that. So I, I've never finished it. I'll probably finish it someday, but not right now when we have Nazis of our own running around here. So the series I'm watching on Apple TV is called For All Mankind. And the premise is that a few weeks before the U.S. launches Armstrong and Aldrin to land on the moon, the Soviets do it first. As a result, NASA's in deep trouble with Congress, with the president, who is Nixon at the time. They kept that. And so it has to step back, take a look at itself and its mission, and maybe find a new mission. They do go through with the U.S. moon launch, but it isn't exactly received as spectacularly as it was. I mean, I remember it very, very well. And it's very toned down in this because in this premise, it comes second. I've only watched the first three episodes and I do really like it. Now, they have alternate history, yes, but it's it's kind of... I, I can't quite describe it. It's like they very deftly have woven allusions to real history in there to give it more authenticity, meaning there's a lot of what-if moments. For example, as a result of the Soviets landing on the moon, Senator Ted Kennedy cancels his planned party on Chappaquiddick Island and returns to Washington to hold hearings. Now that makes for some interesting speculation. No party on Chappaquiddick Island, no trip across the Edgartown Bridge, no car crash, no death of a young woman in his car that he leaves behind. So again, very interesting speculation. And the actors who are voicing real people like Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger and a lot of others are just spot on. There are segments of conversations with Nixon on the phone with his aides, Haldeman and so forth, and Henry Kissinger, where you think you are listening to the actual Nixon tapes that the archives, the U.S. archives, release every few years. They release some more of them. It's really, really well done. And the segments about what the reaction would have been if the Soviets had beat us to the moon are so realistic. It just, I don't know, it's, it's eerie on one side and it's fascinating on another. The only thing off-putting about the series, for me at least, besides Werner von Braun played as a benevolent grandfatherly figure despite his working thousands of Jews to death at his rocket factories, is the emphasis yet again on the Mercury and Apollo astronauts being horny dogs 
while they're away from their wives in Cocoa Beach, Florida. If you've read the right stuff, if you've seen the movie or the series of the same name, you know about this tacky aspect of the men who became our heroes. Then again, if you accept heroes can have feet of clay, it might not upset you. And it doesn't really upset me. It's just like a record skipping and going back over the same verse time and time and time again. But obviously, we all know why it's in there. It's what people want to see because it's salacious and it's sensational and so forth. For All Mankind has two seasons so far, a total of 20 episodes, I believe. So I have a ways to go to finish it. And it was referred to me by a friend of mine who likes sci-fi as, as I do. And he's also hinted that the second season is pretty spectacular. So I am going to finish watching it when I have time. I don't seem to have much time lately. And right now, it, it is only on Apple TV, but it's produced by one of the people who produced the Battlestar Galactica reboot, so it's a bit on the dark side. They have changed the name of some of the astronauts, probably because they didn't want to get sued, but not for Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins, and not for the Russian astronaut who ends up being the first man on, on the moon. We know from being able to look at post-Soviet documentation that this particular astronaut was supposed to be on their moon flight if they had done one. Again, it's an interesting premise with some really good production quality, and I'd recommend it. And a key aspect of the beginning episodes is that intelligence failures caused the Soviets to take us completely by surprise. But then another bit of intelligence from the CIA contributes to this new direction NASA takes, but I won't say more on that. As I watch more episodes, I'll update this mini review as necessary. Again, for all mankind on Apple TV exclusively for now. In fact, it'll probably remain exclusive to Apple TV because I haven't really seen where Apple has shared any of its original series anywhere else. I also started Louise Penny's and Hillary Clinton's new novel, State of Terror. It's 500 pages long, but it's so good, I blew through the first 100 pages all in one afternoon. It's an intricate, and well-wrought plot, and I spent a lot of time wondering if her depiction between the Secretary of State in this novel and the President in this novel was a reflection of Obama and Clinton's relationship. Now, I honestly don't think so. I think they ended up having a good relationship through her tenure as Secretary of State and afterwards. I mean, he supported both of her runs for the presidency and endorsed her. So I have a feeling that part of it is high fiction. And it also works in some allusions to conspiracy theories about the Clintons. It, it's actually very good. Good plot, intriguing characters, and I'm looking forward to reading more. And if you're a Louise Penny fan, you will see 
her structure of writing in there. So I have a feeling that it was Hillary Clinton's idea and Louise Penny helped her flesh it out. And Louise Penny's name is first on the book cover. And of course, if you have multiple authors of a book, the name that comes first, unless you're James Patterson, of course, then his name comes first for everything. The person who contributes more to the book goes first. So, all right, real quick commercial time. This week, my author copies of the hardcover edition of Welcome to Belgrade arrive, and I love, 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 love the look of the hardcover. If you recall, the cover of this book, the ebook, and the paperback of Welcome to Belgrade features an illustration of a woman's eyes against a white background with a slash, uh, a jagged slash of red at the top and the bottom. Because I opted to have a matte finish to the hardcover, I'm not really sure why I opted for that, except that it looks good in a hardcover. The red on the cover renders slightly different, but it looks great. I posted a short video of the opening of the box of books on my Facebook author page, www.facebook.com slash unspywriter, if you want to take a look. And of course, the ebook is still on sale for 99 cents this month, along with there'll be some free days coming up pretty soon. And there's the giveaway of a copy of that hardcover edition. To put your name in the running for this giveaway, go to this podcast Facebook page. The link to it will be in the description of the episode. Leave a comment about any of the podcast October episodes. So far, episodes 40, 41, and today's 42. Then after October 31st, I'll place the names of the commenters in a random name selector and pick a winner. I'll notify the winner via Facebook Messenger so we can work out mailing details. Oh, and Facebook has nothing to do with the administration of the giveaway nor the selection of a winner. Enough commercial already. Let's get back to reading from Welcome to Belgrade. Now let me set this reading up because it's a couple of chapters beyond what I read earlier. Alexei has reported on his visits to White Knights as we saw, and she's not particularly happy to hear the details of the lap dance Alexei bought in the line of duty, of course. So he still gets the cold shoulder, but he has identified some Russians who are regulars at the club and who might be the mercenaries orchestrating the Friends of Milosevic murders. So after the lap dance, he sends a bottle of vodka to their table and leaves, intending to make full contact on his next visit, which he does. He and the Russians drink a lot, exchange war stories, and after Alexei believes he's built enough trust, he asks for a private talk with the man who seems to be in charge of these Russians, a man named Anatoly, or Tolia. Welcome to Belgrade, Chapter 27, Rodina. When Volodya and Vanya bought another table dance, Alexei decided to test how much trust he'd built with Anatoly. 
He leaned toward Anatoly and murmured, Tolia, let's talk some business, away from the hired help. Anatoly was the one to narrow his eyes this time, but he rose, motioning the other two to stay put. Alexei followed the man's unsteady gait to the bar. While Anatoly negotiated with the bartender manager, Alexei glanced back at the Russian's table. Vanya didn't watch the dancing waitress at his table. He watched Alexei instead. Irina walked toward Alexei, blocking his view of Vanya for a moment. She grasped his right hand, palming something into it, and continued on her way. He waited until she was across the room to look into his hand. A plain white business card with her name and address. He flipped it over and read, in case you need anything when I am off work. He slipped the card into a trouser pocket, reminding himself to get rid of it before he saw Mai again. If all went well in the next few minutes, he'd have no need to return here. Anatoly motioned Alexei to follow him down a corridor to the left of the bar. The noise from the main area receded, and Anatoly spoke over his shoulder. Piotr there is letting us use his office for privacy, yes? The office was utilitarian, a desk and a few file cabinets. Alexei looked around for security cameras and saw none. Eyes bleary from all the beer he'd consumed, Anatoly belched and asked, What business do you want to discuss? Alexei moved until he was beyond Anatoly's reach, putting Pyotr's metal desk between them. He unbuttoned his jacket to give him easier access to his gun. I have heard there are some Russians in Belgrade doing work for the government, Alexei said. Anatoly would have been a good poker player, not a muscle twitched. I told you, we are working to rebuild what NATO destroyed in the bombing. I've heard of other, more personal work. Anatoly said nothing. You and your friends are not construction workers, Alexei said. Tolia, I'm not SVR or FSB, and I could care less about how many Serbs you kill. I want in. I make a lot of money with my investments. I am good at it. But it does nothing for the adrenaline. It is a different kind of hunt, an unsatisfying one. Understand? Anatoly gave a brief nod. You missed the old life. You have certain talents and desires. Alexei's grin was wolfish. I am from the steppe. Now and then I need warm blood on my hands. I am fit, in good shape. My skills are undiminished. I am convinced, comrade, but I do not have the final say. That is for the boss to decide. Take me to him. Have him give me a test. Alexei stopped there. That was enough desperation. And if he says no? Anatoly asked. You have my word on my silence. The two men shook hands. Come on, Anatoly said. Let us go round up the other two before they are too drunk. Once Anatoly and the stranger Alexei disappeared down the corridor, Vanya stood up. I'm going to piss, 
he told Volodya and headed for the toilets. In the dark hallway, he brought out his mobile phone and dialed. Allo? came the reply after one ring. He made contact, Vanya said. His name is Alexei Nikolaevich, like you said. He is talking with Tolia now. All right. He probably came in his own car. Insist he bring it, and you ride with him to show him the way. You know what to do, da? Of course. Take his wallet, watch, gun, holster. He may or may not have a necklace with two metals on it. If he does, take that too. It will be done as you say. Vanya hung up and returned to the table. Okay, that should be enough for today. Now, tomorrow, I'm going to see the latest version of Dune, based on the magnificent novel by Frank Herbert. The 1980s movie is something of a cult classic, and I liked parts of it. The 2000 series on the Sci-Fi Channel was a bit of a garbled mess, though it had some interesting visuals. Now, I've seen the trailer for the 2021 version, and I'm really looking forward to it. So, a mini-review of that next week. It's science fiction, yes, but if you've read Dune, you know there's plenty of spy-like intrigue and manipulation throughout. Don't forget, leave a comment on the podcast Facebook page to put your name in the hat or the randomizer to win a hardcover edition of Welcome to Belgrade. The United States has had nearly three-quarters of a million deaths from COVID-19, including this week, General Colin Powell. And that's approximately 15% of the deaths worldwide. It's a sobering statistic. So let's not allow it to go much higher. Wear a mask, wash your hands, watch your social distancing. Above all, get vaccinated and get your booster if you're eligible. I don't want to see U.S. deaths go above a million. Frankly, one was too many, especially since we had a system in place to deal with pandemics, a system that was gutted for partisan reasons. All right, enough said on that. Whatever you're doing this weekend, remember how important it is to keep an eye out for spies. The proceeding has been a production of Unexpected Paths Media, copyright 2021, all rights reserved. Tune in next week for a new episode of The Real Spies, Real Lives podcast.